0: Gay Mormon Stories is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. To support this podcast, please donate today at GayMormonStories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. And thanks for listening. So let's bring up the next major subject about your journey that'll be of interest to this audience is your coming back in a way, in your own way, to Mormonism, to activity and to involvement in the Mormon community. So let's hear about that journey. Well, so basically, I told you about how I went
1: through this period where I feel like I was pretty distant from God. And I was exploring a lot of things sexually and and spiritually and intellectually. And I toyed with the idea of atheism. And I had kind of set my relationship with the Mormon church aside. And just didn't even really think about it a lot except through my academic studies, studying American religious history and trying to understand the social Framework
0: that but you also stayed in tune by way of Sunstone, and some of the academic.
1: I, I wasn't so much. Okay. Literally, my only connection during that period was D. Michael Quinn. Okay. Because I'd occasionally have phone conversations with him. After I wrote my book on the Y.M.C.A. and after that was published, it felt like this big burden had gone off my shoulders, and I was kind of like, you know, I'm tired of history. I want to write fiction. So then I started writing short stories, and I was exploring with... I was particularly sort of interested in fantasy and horror as a genre. So I was writing things, and I joined a writer's group. And over time, the subject matter of my writing was starting to sort of move toward Mormonism. <laughs> and I realized that not there was... Not because it was a
0: horror story. Not kind of Well, <laughs> maybe. in
1: some ways for me it kind of was, because I, at that point I just saw no... I had a very clear spiritual sense of how it was that I had come to be a gay man in a committed relationship with a man and that I felt blessed by God and that this was something that God had actually guided me to. I had a very clear sense of that and that made perfect sense to me and I just didn't see how that could fit with Mormonism. And I was also experiencing some anger about some of the things that had happened, like what this bishop had done to me, which, you know, the more perspective I got on that BYU experience that I had and how it almost led to my suicide, I really kind of felt that I had been wronged. And there was this ex-Mormon woman that I knew who was the former wife of my parents' former bishop in Massachusetts. And she had connected me with Levina Fielding Anderson. And I had talked with Levina on the phone and kind of told her my story about what had happened with this bishop and and all of that and she encouraged me to document this and write this down and she- ultimately published this, so that was one church connection that I had, although she was one of the you know she was excommunicated right. along with Mike Quinn but Levina sort of gave me an opportunity to think about my relationship with Mormonism, which was really good, and I had written this story, which really kind of helped. And I was talking with Mike Quinn and now I'm finding myself sort of gravitating toward wanting to deal with Mormonism in my fiction writing. And so I thought, okay, I need to start doing some more reading. And so it was kind of like, what was the first book I thought to read? No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. Right. Because that had been so taboo and I thought, oh, well, it's not taboo for me anymore. (laughs) And so...
0: So I start so what's all the fuss about?
1: Reading. Well, you know, okay, so here's the funny thing. So I have this connection with Levina. I have this connection with Mike Quinn. I'm starting to read, and I read Fawn Brody. And at the same time as I'm doing some of this exploration, out of the blue I get an email, because I've been sort of publishing some of my short stories on a website, and I'm using this to kind of interact with other writers in my writer's group. You know, I'll, I'll publish something on the website and they'll read it and we'll talk about it and stuff like that. Well, this guy who is a former missionary companion of my dad's finds the website and he contacts me through the website. And we start having this conversation. So there's like these points of contact that are starting to be made. And... I read No Man Knows My History, and there was something about that history that really troubled me. And the thing that troubled me is, so Brody basically admits that when Joseph, when they come to arrest Joseph after the, the breaking up of the Nauvoo Expositor press, and he flees across the Mississippi, and he's about to head for points west, And then the saints, like, send messengers to him and say, things are going downhill fast. The city's going into chaos. We're scared. Please don't abandon us. And Brody basically admits that Joseph knows when he goes back that he is basically accepting a death sentence, that he's not going to survive this. He knows this when he goes back. And that troubled me because I thought, now, her whole thesis is that he's the fraud who eventually came to believe in himself, right? I mean, right. That, that's the Von Brody thesis. But I can't buy that thesis, right? Because when it comes to a matter of life and death, like, if you made up the Book of Mormon, um, you don't submit to the slaughter, right? You, you say, guys, I love you, but I'm heading for Colorado, <laughs> Right. So that, that piece of Joseph Smith's story troubled me. You know, I was wrestling with that and I became fascinated with Joseph Smith. And, you know, I read the prophet Enigma and, you know, and that was when I started engaging with some of the Sunstone stuff. And then what had happened was Mike Quinn, I'd been longing to see him for a long time. And I think I hadn't seen him. We talked on the phone a lot, but I'd never seen him personally since leaving BYU. And Euron and I were planning a trip out to Utah to visit my parents. And this was August of 2005. And I said, I called Mike and I said, hey, we're going to be in Utah. And I know you sometimes, I knew he was in L.A. at the time or in that Southern California area. And I knew he sometimes traveled up to Utah. And I said, is any chance you're going to be in Utah? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm speaking at Sunstone. So he was like, you could come meet me there. And so I hang up and I said to Euron, I think I want to go to Sunstone. And he's like, okay, that's cool. And so then a couple of days later, I'm like, I don't think I can handle it. Because there's just like all these emotions coming up. And I said, I don't think I want to go to Sunstone after all. I I don't think I can deal with that. I I can't deal with the Mormonism. And so Euron is like, okay, (laughs) don't go. (laughs) And then, you know, a few days later, I'm like, oh, I think I need to go. I think I have to go to this. And he's like, okay. And I went through this like about three or four times. And finally, he's like, just go already. You obviously (laughs) need to go. So I go to Sunstone, and the two sessions that I had to sit in on, the session where Mike Quinn was talking and the session where Levina was talking, and she was doing a presentation on the for the Strength of Youth pamphlet, which had just recently been published at that point. And it was during that session, sitting in and listening to Levina's sort of picking apart of this pamphlet, that I had this spiritual experience. And it was unlike any spiritual experience that I had had since leaving the church. And it was so powerful that I just literally was weeping. And it was a very clear message from the Spirit saying, it's time for you to come back to the church. And I was, felt very conflicted about this. I wanted to argue. I was arguing at that point. Well, I already had like a clear argument in my head. I was like, they won't accept me. I won't be welcome there. And so why even bother? But this was, I mean, this was one of those spiritual experiences that I have had where literally it was so powerful and the nature of it was such that it kind of eroded any doubt that this was coming from within me. That it was so clear to me that the spirit was present and it was not inside me, it was distinct from me. Certainly I felt it within me, inside of me, and there was almost a a kind of burning in the bosom kind of experience. It was this very powerful, very remarkable. It was kind of this thing where literally what was happening in the conference around me was just kind of like zoning out. Uh And I was aware that this thing was happening and that this was real and that God was speaking to me and was saying, it's time for you to come back to the church. And I didn't know what to do with it. I just literally, it was incomprehensible how I even act on that, how I even begin. And so I had not told my parents that I was at Sunstone because I didn't want to like falsely raise their hopes that I was showing any interest in Mormonism or thinking about coming back to the church at all in any way or what. because I wasn't really. I right. that wasn't my intention in coming to Sunstone. When I had this experience I was like I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I couldn't talk to Euron about it because I knew he would like freak out if I told him. Right. I didn't dare talk to my parents about it. There was literally nobody. And so I came back to Minneapolis with every intention of completely forgetting about it and pretending it never happened. Like pretending that this experience had just not happened. But day after day, I was living with the reality that this had happened. And the spirit was continuing to speak to me, like in that hammock, (laughs) hanging on the porch there, (laughs) the Spirit speaking to me and telling me again, it's time for you to go back. And so there's this debate going on in my head for about a month, and Finally, in September, about a month after that Sunstone conference, I finally capitulated. And basically, it was one of many arguments that I was having with God. And finally, the Spirit said to me, look, I'm not asking you to make any changes in your life at all, except I want you to go to church. And I was like, okay, I guess I can handle that. I guess I could go to church. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, how do I do it? Affirmation. So I go to the Affirmation website because I thought maybe Affirmation can kind of support me. Because I'm at this point I'm scared. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back to church, but they're all going to, like, when they find out who and what I am, they're going to, like, drive me out with torches and pitchforks. Right. And so I thought maybe Affirmation can help me and help me find a safe way to do this, a safe way to come back to the church. So I go on the Affirmation website and there's no chapter locally. And so I end up having a conversation with Olin Thomas, who's the president of Affirmation at that point. And, you know, Olin is kind of like, I tell him, I think I need to go back to the church. And Olin is kind of like, oh, well, you know, you don't really need to do that if, if, if you're scared or, or you don't <laughs> want to or, you, you know, and, and he says, you know, my partner and I, we attended church for a while, but we just kind of felt like it was leading nowhere. And so, you know, we don't do that anymore. And, and I was like, no, but I need to go to church. I need to go. And so I thought, I need this connection with Affirmation. Maybe they can support me somewhat. And ultimately, that was how I ended up becoming the Twin Cities, the Minnesota contact for Affirmation. Because I, I said to Olin, look, if I'm the only one here, if there's no chapter, I want to meet others. So make me the contact here so that if there are other game Mormons in this area who want to go on this journey back to the church, I can maybe find them that way. Uh-huh. That was my way of breaking the news to my partner. I said to him, Oh, by the way, um, I'm going to go to the local Mormon church here because I'm going to try to start a a chapter of affirmation, and maybe if I can get to know the bishop here, I can get him to refer people to affirmation. That's what I told my brother. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Knowing that there's no way this scenario is ever going to happen. I mean, I... Actually, I have legitimate reason to feel guilty about this because I was kind of lying to Euron about my real reasons for going to church. It was the other way around. I needed to go to church, but I...
0: You were predicting he would feel unsafe by that news.
1: Yeah, I did. And and so, in fact, I even kind of lied by telling him that I was going to just go to the church a few times so I could get to know people. So... I wasn't sure when I was going to start doing this. So then, like shortly after that, we're at these friends of ours that we would visit these friends in St. Paul every Sunday. We'd go over to their house and we'd drink wine and talk and have a good time. And we went over there a Sunday afternoon and who should call but the missionaries. Now, this has never happened to me before. (laughs) So I look at it as sort of semi-providential. Well, it was providential, because here's what happens. So these missionaries, I talked to them. My friend said, you talk to them, you're a Mormon. So my mission was to send them away. And what ended up happening is we ended up having a conversation, a long conversation on the front porch of my friend's house. And I end up coming out to them, because there had been opportunities over the preceding you know, 15 years or so, <laughs> 18 years, when I could have spoken with missionaries, and I didn't. And and this time I said, I'm going to talk to them. So I said to them, you know, I've done what you're doing right now. I serve my mission in the Swiss Geneva mission. And this guy says, what caused you to lose your testimony? And I said, well, I'm gay. And I said, it's not that I lost my testimony. It's that my testimony almost caused me to take my own life. That's what I said to him. Yeah. And so we ended up having this long conversation and I sort of gave them the gay Mormon 101 spiel. And I can tell, you know, one of them is the senior companion and one of them is the junior because the senior is doing most of the talking and he's kind of wanting to argue with me. And he says, well, how do you account for the book of Mormon? And, I was like, you don't want to go there with me because I can pull all sorts of facts on the Book of Mormon that will probably shake your testimony. Yeah. And, you know, so we kind of had this discussion that was never really got heated, but it was kind of moving in that general direction. But the junior companion is just listening. And there's this very gentle expression on his face, like very compassionate expression on his face. And when I'm sharing the story about how I almost committed suicide and all of that, he, I can tell that there's almost kind of a pained look in his eyes, but he's not saying a word. And somehow just the way he was looking at me, there was kind of a connection made that I sensed that he, and so the conversation ends and they said, well, you should consider coming to church." And I said, "Well, as a matter of fact, I've already been considering coming to church for some time and I've actually decided that I do need to come back to church." And he was like, "Oh, well, that's fantastic, you know." And so he hands me the card with the contact information for the where the church is. But it's the wrong information because it's for the Dinky Town ward, the student ward. Right. And so I leave it at that. So it takes me another month to get up the courage to go to actually go to church and this is scary i mean literally i'm in fear and trembling and it's not too far it's about a half an hour walk from our house and i decide that i'm going to walk because it'll give me some time to sort of spiritually ground myself and i'm praying i get down on my knees and i pray before i go to church and i ask the lord to just protect me and be with me and And I arrive at the church with fear and trepidation. I walk through the back doors. I find a seat at the back of the congregation. I sit down, and there's four missionaries sitting in front of me. And one of them turns around, and it's the junior companion that I had spoken to on my friend's doorstep. Okay. And as soon as he saw me, his face lit up. Huge grin. He Reaches out, he shakes my hand, and I thought, somebody in this church knows that I'm gay, and he's glad that I'm here. And it was such a huge relief to me, yeah. because I thought, he's going to tell other people, (laughs) which is what I wanted. I wanted people to know that I was gay. So after sacrament meeting, people were getting ready to go to Sunday school and sort of the next meeting or whatever, and I was retreating. I was going to make a run for it. And so I was heading toward the exit, and before I could get out of the building, this missionary, his companion, came and grabbed me. And they had brought with them an individual who at that time was the president of the elders quorum uh-huh. and um they let me know that i was welcome there anytime and you know they said we hope you'll come back again next week and that elders quorum president every week that i'd come back he'd sit next to me and he was encouraging me to come to sunday school and to to priesthood meeting. And then the missionaries are like, can we come over to your house? And so I thought, okay, we need to have a talk. So I sit down in the Sunday school room. This is after church is done. Uh And the elders quorum president is there. The ward mission leader is there who's a former bishop and who's now one of my best friends in my ward. And the missionaries are all there. And I say, okay, okay. I came back to church because the Spirit told me I need to come back. And I've been in a relationship with my husband for 15 years, and I'm not leaving him. That's never going to happen. And so I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. And they were like, that's fine. That's fine. We don't care. We just want you to know that you're welcome here. So then I thought I'm going to have to talk to the bishop. And so, again, fear and trepidation. I have no idea how the bishop is going to react to me. And he's one of these Utah-born, old-school... He's in his, like, 60s or 70s, very theologically... I mean, everything that I hear him say over the pulpit, very theologically conservative. And I'm thinking, this guy, I don't know. Hmm. But I, I was like, I need to talk to him. I need to tell him my story. And so I call my parents, and... This is a few months down, and by this time I've told my parents that I'm going to church, and they're, like, overjoyed. They're, like, really, really happy. And so I called my parents, and I said, I I need you to fast and pray with me, because I'm meeting with my bishop. And so they said, we'll do that. And so they were fasting with me when I arrived at the bishop's office. And I told the bishop my story, and the first words out of his mouth were, You're the fulfillment of prophecy. And I said, really? And he quotes the passage in Joel where it talks about in the latter days, the Spirit of the Lord will be poured out on all flesh. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord has been poured out on you. And then he started telling me where he was the moment that he heard about the revelation on priesthood for African-Americans We both understood the significance of him telling me that story in that situation. Right. And he said, I understand you're in a very difficult situation. And he says, your husband must be somebody very special because I can see your devotion to him. He must be somebody that's worthy of that devotion. And I said, he is. And he said, you're in a very difficult situation. He says, I want you to consider... Living the gospel as fully as you can. He said, I can't re baptize you into the church under the current circumstances as long as you're in a relationship with your husband, but I want you to feel as welcome here as you possibly can. He said, If any priesthood leader in this ward gives you any difficulty, you send them to me and I will take care of it. And every Sunday morning, that man would come up, he would give me a hug, he would smile. He let me know that he knew my name, he knew who I was. He found creative ways to get me involved in the ward. They uh, had me write a script for a youth video project. Hmm. He had me doing genealogical extraction work. He occasionally recruited me to be an usher. Uh, He encouraged me to, you know, help clean up in the chapel and so on. And he would meet with me from time to time, and we would just talk, and he would encourage me. And wonderful man. Yeah. Bishop Midgley. And eventually he was released, and he introduced me to the new bishop, and my new bishop has been supportive as well. Good. Uh, So that has kind of been my journey, you know, with the ward, and I think sort of a key moment or a key turning point was one morning when I had a prompting from the Spirit telling me that I needed to bear testimony. It was Fast and Testimony Sunday. And Euron was actually on vacation because he's involved with the gay fraternity, Delta Lambda Phi, and he was Uh on some like weekend retreat with the fraternity or something like that. And so I was alone at home and was getting up in the morning and I felt this very strong prompting from the Spirit saying, you need to bear your testimony today. And I said, I can't bear my testimony because I'm not allowed. I'm excommunicated. I'm not allowed to speak over the pulpit. And the Spirit responded, ask your bishop. And by this time, it's the new bishop. Uh-huh. Now, the new bishop is... A little bit more of what I would call a sort of stickler for the rules. Okay. Okay? So I'm thinking, there's no way. And that's what I I say. I was like, I can ask the bishop, but he's not going to let me bear my testimony. And then the spirit basically says to me, your responsibility is to ask him. And if he says no, you've acquitted yourself before God. But if you don't ask, at least ask him, you're not being obedient right now. And so I was like, okay, so I get dressed. I rush a little bit because I need to be early enough to, to ask my bishop. To find him. I'm riding my bike, and as I'm riding my bike, I'm composing the speech that I'm going to make to my bishop about why he should let me bear my testimony. And the Spirit says to me, don't do that. The Spirit says, don't make a speech to your bishop. Go into the office Ask him if you can bear your testimony. And so I was like, okay. So I'm trying to clear my mind. I'm like trying to not think anything. I'm thinking I'm just going to arrive at church. I park my bike. I walk into the church. I get to the bishop's office just as an executive committee meeting is ending. The bishop is standing there at the door. I say, do you have one minute that I can speak to you? He says, I do. Come in. I say, can I bear my testimony today? And he looks me right in the eye, and he says, You have the gift of faith. You may bear your testimony today. It's all it took. <laughs> it's all it took. Yeah. Now, he he made sure that I understood the following month that that was a one-time thing. It was never going to be allowed again. And I said, you know, a month later, when he clarified that with me, he said, I just want to make sure you understand that that was a one-time thing. And And I said... Oh yeah, I said I, I understand that and I I said the only reason I asked you is because the spirit prompted me to ask you to let me do that and he said the spirit prompted me to let you. Now, see when I talk about like validation of spiritual experiences to me that's an example of validation. Yeah. Like I know that the spirit was speaking to me because it spoke to my bishop too. And so I bore my testimony, it was very emotional experience for me. And after I bore my testimony, one after another, brothers and sisters got up and they bore their testimony of me. They told what they knew of me. And this sister, who was former choir director, said, you know, I know of John's testimony of Christ. I I can hear it in how he sings the hymns. My bishop, at the end of this fast and testimony meeting, he got up and he he said, we have some people in this congregation with remarkable courage. And he looked right at me. And after the meeting ended, there was just this crowd of people who gathered around me to give me hugs. And there were wonderful conversations that happened after that. And And it was after that, that basically I was out to the whole congregation. Everybody... In my ward, basically, yeah, and it it really changed the dynamic for me, you know, in terms of just me feeling very comfortable. And I talked openly about my relationship with my husband, about what that meant to me. I talked about my spiritual journey. I basically gave a very condensed version of the hours-long story that I'm giving you here. But right. you know, they sort of heard the big picture and. I feel very embraced by my ward and very supported by my ward, and I have noticed that my perception is that as the church has taken steps to like this initiative that that it's it's changing, I can feel a change. It feels differently to me attending church. so for me there's there's like a tangible. Change is happening. I mean, people are people are more open, more loving. They're more willing to listen.
0: And you're seeing it in the members. In I'm their, seeing it. In their congregation, yes. in their hearts, and their yes. words, and their deeds. Yes.
1: And in the seven years that I've been active in this ward, um, there have been only two individuals who have really suggested that I ought to consider leaving my partner. You know, apart from that... People in the ward are very respectful of my relationship with Euron. Uh, Members of the ward refer to him as my husband. Um, They ask me about him. They ask me about my family. Uh, They're very, very loving and very respectful. So it's, again, I think it's an example of where, you know, I come, and my experience coming back to church has been, you know, when I made that decision to obey the prompting of the Spirit in August of 2005 and go back to church. I knew that I was doing that partly because I wanted that close companionship of the Spirit in my life again. And I knew that if I didn't do that, if I didn't obey what the Spirit was telling me to do, that I would lose the Spirit. So the process for me has been... If the Spirit tells me to do something, I do it because I want more of the Spirit in my life. And so that's kind of been my path. And so I have had incredible spiritual experiences in my ward, at church, and I've experienced this process of basically rebuilding my testimony from scratch. And unquestionably, my testimony now is stronger than it ever was in my life, you know, even prior to leaving the church or, you know, when I was a missionary or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, my testimony of the Book of Mormon is based on my reading of the Book of Mormon and my application of the, the principles taught in the Book of Mormon. And, you know, that's that has been my approach. It's been a very practical, hands-on, you try a principle of the gospel and see how it works in your life. And when it works, you have a testimony of it. And, and my goal from the beginning was always just, I wanted to have the spirit in my life. That was that was what I wanted. And so I let go of any outcome with regard to how the church would deal with the issue of homosexuality, with regard to how the members of my ward would treat me or what they would think about me. I let go of all of that. I was like... If well,
0: you ended up approaching it from a position of strength because you didn't let them have any power over that experience for you. I mean, obviously, they ended up giving you some positive experiences, right? But you didn't take the mentality that any of them is really able to hurt you, or that the church able to hurt you. And really, you're at this point in your life, you were strong enough to go back and be, in a way, above the fray. Um, I, so I the, certainly wasn't vulnerable. Yeah.
1: The, now, now there was a th- there was a point where I felt the need to revalidate my spiritual experiences in relation to my husband. Yeah. Because I did feel that the contradiction just seemed too big. Yeah. Like because the, the church seemed to be so clearly like this is wrong, and I had such an undeniable testimony that the church was true, that I could not, I couldn't just leave that contradiction floating out there without at least engaging with it somewhat. Yeah. And so there was a point where I thought, okay, I I came to this relationship with my husband through a very prayerful, deliberative process. And I had experiences with my husband that and and in our relationship that confirmed to me that this was the right thing. But, but I thought, okay, all of those experiences I had away from the church, and now I'm back, re-engaged with the church, and, and I have this renewed testimony of the church, and so I need to test this one last time. And so there was a point where I really made this an issue of fasting and prayer, and, and I did get, again, my own confirmation that, that my relationship with my husband, that if anything, what the Lord expected of me was to be more faithful to him, to be more devoted and committed, that my only failure as far as that relationship had been the ways in which I had not been as devoted
0: a spouse as I should have been. Right, right. the so, normal failures, but not... Yeah. The problem isn't that you're with him. Right. The problem is that you're right. not with him enough. Right. So I definitely
1: had that foundation where I wasn't vulnerable in the way that a lot of gay people in the church are vulnerable. Because when you're in a position where you haven't tested that for yourself and you haven't come to your own strong foundation, other people's criticism can become devastating.
0: Right. And you also knew. You knew what you were getting into Right. And a lot of people, a lot of gay people, most gay people have to leave the church, right. and very few can come back. But the reason you could come back is that you, you know, in a way, you know, I hate to be hyperbolic, like, but, you know, if you think of Gandhi, he, um, in his spiritual pursuit, he chose to a position of humility in a way. He wore, you know traditional clothes he swore off sex he became a vegetarian lots of things that um kind of for him it was important to be in a position of humility
2: mm-hmm.
0: um so i don't recommend it for everybody and i wouldn't do it but you are definitely going there from a position of strength and humility and the combination they're both essential in order for it to work mm-hmm. because you can't do it without either one of them there's n- You can't go there without humility because you're absolutely in a second-class position, right? But you also can't go there without strength or it will destroy you. It'll be too toxic. But if you go there with both, you know, maybe there's people like you who can do it.
1: The, um, yeah. I mean, I'm very aware that if I had gone in there with some kind of a chip on my shoulder or... Whatever, if I had security security, right. if I hadn't been able to just let go homophobia, of all the right. homophobia, Right. So I could have a situation where somebody, those two individuals who at one point or another, had confronted me about my relationship, and I could hear what they had to say, feel no need to argue with them at all. And really, it didn't touch me in any way at all. I yeah. was kind of like, if you knew my relationship with god, if you if you had had the experiences that I've had, you would know that there's really no basis for you to assert that this is what I'm supposed to do you You, you don't yeah. know what you're talking about, although I didn't feel the need to say that to them, yeah, I just listened to what they have to say. I'm like, you know, because you had the position of right and right I didn't need to. And the remarkable thing is that that just opens things up so wonderfully because I was going in there and I wasn't judging them, and that freed them to not judge me. That freed them, more or less, to just let me be who I am and let me do what I need to do. And I wasn't holding my bishop accountable for policies that are set in Salt Lake. Yeah. He's not at liberty to change those policies. And so, why should I go in there and be pissed off at him? Yeah. There's no point in that.
0: Can I... Um- yeah. Can I just, do you mind touching on you? You had shared with me in another time about an interview with the state president that I... Yeah. I wish you would tell us about that.
1: Well, you know, after Gay Pride... Um, this year. This year, when I helped to organize a group of 30 active Mormons to march in Gay Pride, uh-huh. there was an individual who was going to march with us who... What I was told was kind of pulled aside by church leaders and told he should not participate. And I was a little bit concerned about that. And so I decided to have a talk with both my bishop and my stake president. And I had met with my stake president a couple of months before Gay Pride just to introduce myself to him and to sort of tell him my story and get to know him. And he was new. He had just been called a stake president. And so I went and I told him my story and he listened very attentively. He gave me very generous time. There was, I never had any sense of being rushed or I don't have time for this or whatever. I mean, he, he wanted to hear the whole story and he let me talk and he let me tell it. He asked good questions And he, after we had talked for a while, he said to me, I could not counsel you to do anything different than what you're doing in your life already. He said, I applaud the choices that you have made and that you are making. And he said, I know that what you would like me to do for you is to, you know, enable you to be a member of the church again. And he said, I can't do that for you. And I said, I know you can't for the reason that I just told you, you don't make the policy. I I said, I just wanted you to know my story. I wanted you to know who I am. And he said, then, I know who you are, and I know your story. And he he asked for my phone number. He wanted to know if I would be willing to be a resource for the stake. And I told him I was happy to do that. He told me, now, some people might be insulted by the wording, I wasn't insulted. I was complimented. Okay. But what he said is, you have an orientation toward the gospel. And I didn't know if that was an intentional (laughs) play on words. (laughs) I don't know if somebody might have been insulted by that. But I understood exactly what he was saying. You know, he was saying he understood that the priority for me was being close to God and that... I had a testimony of the church and that the church was a vehicle for me, as it should be for all people, to approach God and to get close to God. And so I felt very respected in that conversation with my stake president. And after Gay Pride, I called him and I wanted to meet with him again and he agreed to meet with me. And this time I brought with him another member of my ward who had been involved in the Gay Pride March. And we talked and we presented to him four specific things that we thought that the stake could do to be of great, you know, extend a greater welcome to gay and lesbian people in the church. Uh And again, he was very open, very listening. He, He expressed interest in this gay Mormon family home evening group that I had been organizing for some time he said that he wanted to attend oh. the gay Mormon family home evening group just to meet people and and get to learn more about it he was intrigued by what I had to say about gay pride and why I thought it was important for church members to participate
0: uh-huh.
1: and uh, you know so again very very positive feedback from from my state president yeah very positive feedback from my bishop when I talked to him about gay pride and explained to him, you know, and I, I told a story which was quoted by Joanna Brooks in, you know, Religion Dispatches, when she kind of did her write-up on the gay pride marches, and there we'd had this experience where one of our marchers was carrying a sign that said, sorry, we're late, Yeah, and this older gay man approached her and said to her, I was excommunicated three days after my lover died. And I love you all, but get the fuck out. Yeah. You you can bleep that on the podcast if you need to. And it was a very sobering encounter. And, you know, especially since Mormons, you know, they're kind of wondering how welcome are we at Gay Pride and yeah. you know, for somebody to say this, but I mean definitely a mixed message. You know, I love you guys, I'm glad you're here, but get the fuck out. It's sort of like you know, definitely a kind of a conflicted,
0: you aren't here apologizing yet, but maybe that's what he was saying. Could be,
1: could be, but you know, we kind of talked about it and we, it was a painful story. The thought of this individual being excommunicated literally while he still hasn't even had time to grieve
0: the loss of his partner. There's lots of stories oh, like that. Oh, there's, there's a lot of stories y- like that you know, or but worse.
1: And we were taken aback by it. I mean, it was just it was very sobering. Like there yeah. was a definitely a sort of a solemn mood among the group as we were discussing what what had happened, but we all sort of had without even really having to talk about it, we all felt this consensus of that's why we're here.
2: Yeah.
1: It's like we should have been here. 20 years and ago. even if it's know,
0: too late to really repair the damage yeah. done to him, you've got to be there for the young people right. who are going to see this, and it will change their path. Right. And that's it's the young gay Mormons who are really going to be most impacted by that. Right. But before we move too far from your stake president, yeah. I don't want to get these guys in trouble, but I really want to repeat this message you got from both your bishop yeah. and stake president that they didn't think you should do anything different than you're doing. They didn't think you should divorce your husband. They didn't think you should leave him. They thought you should just do your best. And I think that's beautiful. I wish and I hope that becomes something that sinks into the heads of a lot of state presidents yeah. that this is what empathy is about. And right. Empathy versus judging and so so much they've taken the role of judge right. and the church court system, the disciplinary actions have put them in that role. Right. I really hope they take a new role of the empathetic, even if they can't control yeah. the policy.
1: Well, you know, first of all, since this is going to be like public and on the internet, you know, I, I feel obligated to give my stake president some plausible deniability <laughs> if he needs to and say that, you know, I mean, he, both my bishop and my stake president, made it clear that under the current church guidelines, if I want to be a member, right, that's the path. But they never gave me any sort of impression, even. They certainly didn't say it, and they certainly didn't give me any kind of impression that they felt like I needed to do this. To divorce. To divorce my husband. Yeah. That I very much felt empowered by their response to me, in that what they were saying is, you need to do what is right for you. And so I definitely didn't feel like there was even any hint. And my stake president was so, it was a different experience of a relationship with the stake president for me. Yeah. Because, you know, my previous experiences with my stake president, I kind of felt like he's way up here and I'm way down here. And he's this big authority and I'm this nobody, right? I mean, that's kind of, there's sort of this kind of awe that I approach church leaders with. Whereas this experience that I had, I felt like we're brothers in Christ. And that he was totally respectful of my journey.
0: And in a way that's, you know, once again, I want to point to the humility that... By somehow being so outside of the normal realm of, you know, the church hierarchy, you know, you're not just, <laughs> you're not just not a state president, but you're not even a member. In a way, it ended up removing the relevance uh-huh. of the hierarchy. So in a way, I mean, I, like yeah. I say, I'm not advocating this as an ideal thing, but for you, in a way, somehow the approach of humility that you took, but it also eliminated the difference in hierarchy that you might have with him. Right. Because in this bigger sense, it is irrelevant. It is, you are two sons of God. Right. And on a different way of getting from here to there.
1: Well, I feel like, you know, like we were, when I was in Salt Lake for circling the wagons, and Randall Thacker and I had a chance to talk to an Area 70 who spoke at the devotional there, and talked to members of the stake leadership in the San Francisco stake when I was out there for Circling the Wagons at the beginning of August. And it feels to me like we're in a completely different space now, where I feel like as an excommunicated gay man in a committed same-sex relationship, in a relationship that's lasted for 20 years, that my sense is almost that five years ago, ten years ago, I would have been utterly dismissed. Yeah, That there would have been no basis for me to approach any church leader of any stature about anything and be taken seriously. Whereas now I feel like there's genuine, like they're taking me seriously. They won't, obviously, they're not changing church policies or anything like that. But the tone and the feel of things is feels like a sea change to me. Yeah, I mean, really, qualitatively. It feels
0: different, completely different. That gives room for optimism. I'm hoping we have time to discuss some of your current activities. but I think a lot of the listeners know about them. And what's most important really is your journey because you're doing a lot of great stuff that we can't possibly talk about all of them. But I do want to come to one super important thing that we really wanted to highlight in this podcast. And you talked about by their fruits, you should know them. Yeah. And in your life, I think that you have to take that into account when you talk about having chosen a gay family. But what I want to spend the next little while talking about was your experience as a gay parent. We haven't mentioned this yet, but there's so many gay and lesbian people who just assume that because they're gay or lesbian, that by choosing to have a same-sex relationship means they won't have a family And you and I know that that's false, that they can have a family. And there's lots of different ways people do have families. But Mm -hmm. you have a particularly inspiring story about your experience with becoming a parent. And so could you go into that? Sure. We, basically, we were
1: approached by a friend of mine, a, a friend of a friend, actually, who had been introduced to me because of the Mormon connection because uh, this, this individual was a former member of the church. And so I had kind of made the connection on that basis, but this person was actually a social worker. And she called me out of the blue and said, have you and your aunt ever considered becoming foster parents? And interestingly enough, literally shortly before that phone call, I had been visiting my parents' in Utah earlier that summer and while I was worshiping with them at their ward I had a very clear distinct spiritual experience in which the spirit said to me you need to open yourself to being a parent and I just kind of didn't know what to do with that I had no idea how we would pursue that or even go about it and so I just kind of filed it away for future reference and I think that prior to that spiritual experience, my sense was until we can be legally married, I wouldn't even consider being a parent because I, I want that legal protection and stability for for the kids. And so I think that if if it hadn't been for that spiritual experience, had my friend asked me, you know, what do you think about being foster parents? I probably would have just said, no, we're not really interested in that. But... I'd had that experience and she said that and it just struck me and I was like, okay, I guess I have to open myself to this. Yeah. So I said, well, we're open to it. <laughs> that was what I said. <laughs> <laughs> we're open to it. And I went up and told you and his jaw dropped because he and I had talked about this. and And in fact, he, again, this is another example of how he was kind of the leading edge on this. Cause he was, had always been pushing me to think about parenthood and I had always said, no, no, no 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 and when I went to him and said what do you think about this you know he was kind of like really you're asking me so we Mm kind (laughs) of we went through this discernment process and ultimately we decided that this was the right thing to do and so in December 2007 Glenn was placed with us and you know he's we had to be careful about like what parts of his story we could share just because of all the confidentiality around foster care and stuff but those restrictions aren't in place anymore because he's out of foster care and he's been very open about it but he was explicitly placed
0: with us because he he was a gay youth and this friend of mine and they were is it because they didn't think he would be able to fit into another kind of a foster situation because of the homophobia or because of his particular issues? Or why did they think a gay youth should be placed with a gay couple?
1: Well, they, they for sure minimally needed to place him in a home where homophobia was not an issue. Yeah. And many of the homes that they work with, it is an issue. So that places limits on where they can place gay youth. And what we learned is that a disproportionate number of youth in the system are gay. I don't know if you are aware of this or not. Yeah,
0: no, I am aware.
1: Um, and so there's an urgent need for parents, foster parents who sort of understand the needs of gay youth. And so that was one reason we had been approached by this individual, because she thought, hey, we need like good, solid, stable gay couples who can who can provide these kinds of homes. And from that perspective, it didn't necessarily matter whether we were gay or straight, yeah. so long as we were gay-affirming. But the fact that we were a stable gay couple who had been together for almost two decades, they saw as us being able to really provide a role model for, for Glenn. So, um, you know, that was a bonus for them. That, okay, that we could provide, can I stop here a yes. second and
0: just uh-huh. you know it's come to my attention that the state of Utah has approximately four hundred and fifty l g b t homeless mm-hmm. teenagers. The state of Utah also has a policy against foster care by Anybody, gay or straight, who's living with their partner but not married, uh, which automatically excludes every gay, gay couple, sta- couple in Utah. who are the most likely ones to yeah. consider foster care compared to a gay single person who conceivably could, right. but they're given a lot of priority. So meanwhile, kids are living on the streets, yeah. and meanwhile, there might be homes the gay community could provide, and they are simply illegal. So yeah. this, they're punishing everybody. But I just wanted to point that out because it's such a huge problem right now. And that's that's interesting. We've got some people trying to address that. But yeah, anyway, I just wanted to point that out in the context of your story. Right. Well, we fortunately were viewed
1: as, you know, a real resource to the state. That's how we've been treated. And things worked really well with Glenn and they, in fact, they kind of saw that whole situation ultimately as kind of a model of how it should always work. Glenn was really a success story. He, uh, he's going to be interviewed, so he'll be able to tell more of his story. But, you know, ultimately, he was very, despite struggling with a lot of really difficult stuff, particularly his junior year was the worst, just sort of struggling with depression and a lot of family issues that we were trying to help him work out with, with his mom and his sisters and so on. And, but ultimately he came through, he excelled academically in his senior year. He got accepted at the university of Minnesota, which is not easy. He's been doing very well academically there. He's really kind of found a direction. He had, you know, he'd started dating his fiance when he was, I guess, just finishing his senior year They've been together for 3 years now and his fiance just proposed to him just last <laughs> month. Uh, it was the sweetest thing because uh, Will came to me and Euron first and wanted our blessing before he would propose to Glenn. <laughs> it was very
0: a role model system that's working. I uh,
1: yes, it was and it made me so happy because you know, we talked about that sort of the craziness that i experienced in dating and trying to find a partner in the gay community and and, and the many ways in which that experience
0: was dysfunctional yeah we'll talk a little and, bit about the kind of Rules you gave you oh, had a gay teen living here, yeah. and what, <laughs> well, what it, was it? What kind of rules did you have about that gay teen? Well, about it's, him y- having boyfriends or whatever. Yeah,
1: yeah, you, you know. And and I should say parenthetically that Glenn, I think, had some crazy ideas about how being placed in a gay couple's home that it was going to be kind of an anything goes sort of scenario. Oh, yep, I can imagine. <laughs> And and we, you know, basically we were clear that we wanted to raise him with the same values and expectations that we were raised with. So we had rules, like if you're going to bring a boyfriend to the house and you're going to be in the bedroom, the door needs to be open at all times. And a yeah. parent needs to be present in the household. You're not going to bring a boyfriend home with no present and no supervision we were clear that we expected sex to be something that would be part of a more committed relationship so we were deliberately wanting to take a position that's pretty much at odds with you know the dating norms that we grew up with in the gay community yeah you know and really wanting to embrace the the dating norms that that were expected of us you know, in the heterosexual families that we were born into.
0: Not to mention no drugs, no alcohol, no 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 drugs, no, no no
1: alcohol, no smoking. You know, if you're going to go over to your boyfriend's house, we need his parents' phone numbers. We need to call them and talk to them and make sure that there's going to be appropriate adult supervision. And there so there was this whole set of rules and structure. And he rebelled against it in the way that every teen does. Right. And we were like, that's okay. You know, we were like, our job is to provide you a safe environment for you to learn about yourself, to learn about relationships, and to, you know, gradually be able to have a positive, strong, committed relationship. And that's our role, is to provide you that structure, that safety, the rules that will help you be successful. Yeah, in a relationship, it is your job as a teenager to get it, away with whatever you can get away with, and we understand. <laughs> well, you didn't that, tell them that.
0: But no, you, we didn't. You recognize but, that, right?
1: right? We recognize that that's that's what teenagers are going to do, and so, you know, were we going to, you know, view it as a shame and a travesty in the end of the world if he lost his virginity under our watch? No. I mean, we understand that things like that happen. We certainly weren't going to try to create any kind of stigma or how can I say trauma around that kind of stuff because what we wanted him to understand is that the best context for a sexual relationship is love and commitment. Yeah. And so if you slip up or if you do this or, or or do that kind of outside of those rules or those boundaries, as long as you understand the principle underlying the rules and the boundaries, and as long as you understand how those rules actually help lay that foundation for commitment and love yeah. and safety, then we've done our job as parents. Right. Right. And...
0: That's what all teenagers need. I mean, it's not just the gay teens, but a lot of the gay teens don't quite get it in a complete way because they can't apply it to their reality. They're only applying it to this reality that isn't their reality at all, and so once they step out of it, they disconnect from that. Right. And you gave him the advantage that he didn't have to disconnect from that. That's right. And I
1: was well-served by the Mormon parenting principle that I was raised with which is we teach them correct principles and they govern themselves we teach them correct principles we always like when Glenn was chafing against a rule we always tried to explain to him why that rule was there yeah and so that he would at least understand and Glenn is a remarkable young man in the sense that he was able to be very forthright and honest with us about everything that was going on for him. And we have very frank discussions about sexuality and about relationships and about safe sex and condom use. Uh, He could talk to us about anything. Yeah. And he knew that that was safe and that our primary concern was his happy, long-term happiness and safety. And so even when we clashed and there were painful clashes, trust me, um, You know, there were nights when it was just, you know, really difficult sometimes. But, you know, ultimately, I don't know how many parents get the satisfaction of within one year of their kid moving out, him calling and saying, you know, gee, you were actually kind of right about X, Y, or Z. (laughs) But we, you know, we got that satisfaction from him. I think that he, you know, he understood a lot of things really well, and we felt really good. And we felt happy that when his fiancé proposed to him that his fiancé's family was totally supportive of them. And we were totally supportive of them. And, And his, Will's parents, who are straight parents, you know, they opened up this wonderful communication with me and Euron when they were still kind of struggling with their son and still hadn't figured out what they thought about the fact that they had a gay son or what that meant. Yeah. And, and so we opened up this wonderful communication with them where they were able to, and of course both the kids were appalled to learn that there was this sort of secret email correspondence going on between their parents, where <laughs> their parents were asking us questions about what was it like for you being gay? Okay. Because this was for them to try to figure out how to help their son. Yeah. Right. And so we've celebrated Thanksgiving with Will's family two years in a row. Nice. And we have this really close bond with them. And so when we found out that our sons wanted to get married, we were like so excited that we were all going to be one big happy family. And, you know, it's just, it's worked. For me, you know, I looked at that and I thought, thank God it's worked the way it's supposed to work, the
2: way yeah. it
0: should work for our gay youth.
2: Yeah. You
0: know? Well, and yeah, you mentioned that there will be an interview, and so I just want to let the listeners know that Amanda, my co leader on this Gay Mormon Stories project, is going to interview Glenn, and we're going to get his version of the story, and he <laughs> won't have heard what we told here and we don't know what he's going to say tomorrow i don't think it's going to be redundant because it's his version is definitely going to be very personal to him but i think it will be really really nice to know what that experience was like for him and so you can look forward to that and i also want to point out that john had such a great time with the first experience he decided to take it on again And they recently welcomed another youth into their home. So they're not feeling ready to retire yet. Most (laughs) most people our age are kind of, at that point, to have grandkids. But you're still taking on a teenager. So I admire the energy. Yeah. Um, Even though their oldest one has fled the nest, they've got another one who's recently arrived. And they're going to have all the traumas and dramas of a teenager again. Yep. And... Here they are now. You're almost fifty, and you're—that's <laughs> <laughs> older than my father was when I was a kid. I was eight out of nine, so yeah. by then it's hard to have the energy for that. So I admire you taking it on. So
1: you know, I think we had to try it at least one more time because it was actually painful when Glenn left, and we were really kind of feeling like we were yearning for that parenting experience at least one more time so well who knows so, some
0: people keep doing it all the way to who knows or, or. maybe
1: i'll be doing it until well after retirement but um yeah. you know if i it takes a lot of energy
0: <laughs> so we'll, we'll see how that goes because it will take some creativity to have
1: grandkids well i told glenn and will you know we're expecting grandkids so
0: okay well let's, let's figure out a way to make that happen yeah great right. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, that's a great story. So, you know, you've got so many projects going on. We can't possibly give them all justice, but let's at least list them. You were involved locally here with the outreach to the Gay Pride Parade and educating yep. your stake and Ward. You are involved with Affirmation. You've been involved yep. with Sunstone. Yep. You certainly participate in other forums online like Mormons Building Bridges. Did I leave something out?
1: I think that pretty much covers it.
0: As well, in addition to
1: teaching American religious history at at a Protestant
0: seminary, and (laughs) you managed to get um, a job in your field, and you um, also been an activist locally. There was a recent ballot measure that most people know about, where they were trying to place an amendment that really was codifying that same-sex marriage wouldn't be allowed. You were really heavily involved in that. Yes. During the past year, you tried to get a Mormon involvement in that, and you succeeded, and you had quite an alliance with a lot of Mormons yes, who were actually campaigning on the side of marriage equality. You
1: know, I would probably, rather than use the word campaigning, I would say conversing. And that was, of course, that was the centerpiece of the whole approach to the, the campaign against Amendment 1 here in Minnesota was that it was a campaign, not of lawn signs and bumper stickers and TV ads, but a campaign of individual Minnesotans talking one-on-one with other individual Minnesotans. And the number one goal of the campaign was to basically have a million conversations. Okay. And we had about a year to have those. And and we met our goal. We had well over a million conversations and we went from being behind in the polls to winning the campaign. And part of what I was involved in was the, you know, what they called the faith wing of the campaign. Yeah. Uh, and I was working with Lutherans, with Catholics, with Jews, with, with people of all different religious traditions. And specifically working within the Mormon community. And what we were really trying to do is just have conversations about marriage yeah and what we recognized is that catholics are going to have this conversation most effectively with other catholics and lutherans with lutherans and mormons understand you know best some of the issues that mormons are concerned about when they discuss issues related to marriage and homosexuality and so it was really important to you know have people within each faith community who understood the faith issues and the theological issues and the community dynamics and how to have these conversations. Yeah um, what I experienced is that it had sort of a dual aspect for me because not only were we talking about marriage and talking about this campaign which was very important to me personally because you know obviously I being Married to my partner in California, I would like our marriage to be recognized here. And if that amendment had passed, it would have been a horrible
0: one more barrier. sort of
1: obstacle. Yeah, one that would have been very difficult to overcome because you need a super majority in order to repeal an amendment. Okay, you need a simple majority to pass an amendment in Minnesota, but you need a super majority to repeal it. Okay. So if this had passed by fifty percent plus one votes, it. But- could have been literally decades before we could have gotten the supermajority required to repeal it. You or know, a Supreme Court decision. Supreme Court could change that too. But so it felt like there was a lot at stake, just in terms of the legislation and the impact that it would have on me and my family. But to have Mormons talking to each other about this, and I had many many conversations with members of my ward about marriage. And many of the people that I talked to voted in support of the amendment and ultimately chose to, you know, disagree with me on that issue. Many that I spoke to felt very conflicted about it and were on the fence. And in fact, I would say the majority of Latter-day Saints that I spoke with in the state and that others who were having these conversations, because there was a fairly large group of LDS people here in the metro area who were having conversations... And so we, you know, I would estimate that within our group, we probably had three to 500 conversations with, uh-huh. with people, which is a fair percentage of Mormons in, the, in this area, in the metro area. And the majority of those conversations that were being reported back to me by others and that I personally was having were people who felt very conflicted. Yeah. It wasn't a, for many, it wasn't a clear-cut, easy decision to make. And we, we also spoke to many who voted against the amendment. But regardless of the conversation that was being had and where it went and where they ultimately came down, whether for, against, or undecided, I always came away with a deeper sense of brotherhood or sisterhood with the person that I was having these conversations with. And I felt... Again, it shifted something for me in terms of my relationship with the church because I felt like I'm bringing that much more of who I am to the church and to my faith as a Latter-day Saint. Yeah. And so I literally just felt like this was, my ward is even more of a home to me than ever before. So the campaign was transformative for me, both spiritually
0: as well as politically. Yeah. Well, let's use this as a lead-in then to the traditional final of a Mormon story, which is your testimony. And I guess most people don't do a typical traditional testimony here, but they a way to summarize what you really want to leave as to where you really are with your yeah. religion and with your church. And
1: Well, my testimony, as I said earlier, is really it comes in the living of it. And it's a very pragmatic testimony in the sense that I practice principles of the gospel and they work. They bring me greater happiness. They ground me. They center me. I see positive changes happening in my life. I see myself becoming a more patient, more compassionate, more loving human being. And the church is enabling me to do that. It's the context in which I become a better person. I experience the presence of the spirit in my life. And I experience a closeness with God. And all of that is a result of that willingness to to stay, to be engaged with, with the church. I could say sort of in the very stereotypical way that Mormons say, I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet. I know that the Book of Mormon is true. I know that the church is true. I know that that the leaders of the church are called by God. All of that is a fundamental part of my testimony. And it's important for me to affirm that and wrestle with the implications of that for me as a gay man. And it hasn't always been easy. You know, in that seven-year journey, there have been many dark nights of the soul where I have really wrestled with my relationship, with my partner, with the church. How do I, you know, how does all this uh, fit together? But ultimately, you know, it's brought me to a very, very, very good place. And I, I trust that everything is going to work out, ultimately, I adhere to beliefs of the church in a sense in a very literal way. And I accept that God is embodied and that heaven is a physical place (laughs) where we will exist and that we will exist in families and that there's some kind of ongoing progression and work that goes on eternally that we will participate in this kind of perfect communion with God and with each other. And I accept all of that in a very literal sense. And that's how my faith works for me. I don't think it could work for me any other way. So I trust that for gay people in the church, things are going to work out. And people think of me as, a lot of people (laughs) think of me as an oddity, Because of the way that I fully affirm my relationship with my partner and because of the way that I insist that the church is true in some objective way. But I am not an oddity in my family. The kind of testimony that I have and the kind of faith that I have and my sense that I'm entitled to a complete and full and equal place in the kingdom of God is... That's the kind of church that I participate in when I am with my family, when we have family prayer, when my father gives me a father's blessing, when we talk about principles of the gospel together, when we talk about how we have grown individually and how we grow as a family as we express love for each other. I know that we can have that kind of a church because I experience it with my family and I have witnessed miracles, like, you know, participated in a healing that took place of my sister that was miraculous. It was a miraculous healing of a neurological problem that the doctors basically told us was beyond treatment. And I fasted with my father, my brother, my mom, sisters. I was present and prayed as my Father and my brother laid hands on her and promised her healing, and she experienced that complete healing within a space of two weeks. So, I've witnessed miracles in terms of the power of the priesthood, in terms of the power of faith. I've experienced miracles myself. So, I know of the truth of that in some very real sense. I know there's a place for me in the kingdom of God that includes my relationship with my husband that will include the relationships that he and I establish with foster children, that those loving relationships that we establish, I see as eternal relationships. I treat them as such. And uh, so that's that's my testimony.
0: Thank you. Well, I sure appreciate your sharing so much with us, and we're really looking forward to see what comes of the near future and your involvement with Affirmation, and I see that you're very proactive on trying to build bridges with church members and with the church institution, and that's kind of a new role for Affirmation, so I'll be very interested to see how that rolls out. Yeah. But meanwhile, I'm really excited to have your Morma story be available for other people to learn about you and hopefully get some inspiration from. And I'm sure that there'll be a lot of people who will be able to use this as a role model for different ways because your story includes a lot of elements that maybe not everyone will, right. will resonate with all of them, but there's some people who will resonate with each of them. And so I... Want to thank you once again for your time and your story and your sharing and your emotion about it and for all the great things you're doing and trying to do. So
1: thanks, Daniel.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Gay Mormon Stories. To discuss this episode with others, please check us out at gaymormonstories.org. If you want to see this podcast continue, please consider making a monthly donation again at gaymormonstories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer moments. Music for this podcast was graciously donated by Clayton Pixton. Check him out at ClaytonPixton.com.
2: Why should this anxious load Press down your weary mind Hasty His goodness stands up.